Well, one of the things that we really can't stand, I think we can all kind of relate to this on every level, I, I really do, um, is when you have like a plan for your life, you like envision a plan for your life, and then you, know, you get to a certain stage and it all gets messed up. Just, it's not what you were expecting. Things did not go what you were expecting. They did not go well for you. Um, no one enjoys imagining in any kind of an idealistic sense of what's going to happen. And then instead of that idea, I, I, that what you've been thinking and idealizing, it goes the complete opposite direction. Like, oh, wow, that's awful. That's terrible, right? This could happen with a career, with a marriage, uh, with a major event in your life, or with any goal you've been working um, towards. And it's just such, it's such a letdown when you're hoping for something and planning for something and you're putting like so much stake into this ideal that you put in your head, maybe for years and years, and to see it crash and burn into a million pieces. I mean, that can lead to... Uh, intense regret, depression, um, sadness, pain. Um, for me personally, it doesn't even have to be a very big thing for me to get upset about it. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, married couples deal with this, you know, small things. This is not a big thing. But, you know, you're planning to go to a restaurant and your spouse just like diverts that, you know. You're like, you were thinking about going to that restaurant. Maybe this is only my problem. I'm not getting any head nods here. I'm like, Nate, you eat too much, you know. <laughs> Don't know how to put this, but you're a little too focused on food, you know. Feeling a little insecure up here. Um, no, I'm just kidding. No, you know, like you're, you're like, uh, for me personally, let's just be honest. Mexican food is objectively the best food you can get. I think so. And yeah, so, you know, I'll be planning to go, like this amazing, my wife and I will talk about it like the day before. We'll go to, you know, a really amazing Mexican restaurant, Las Glorias, as some of you would know. Um, but, you know, let's we plan to go to this really amazing Mexican restaurant tomorrow, you know, for a special event, maybe for an anniversary or a date or whatever it is. And then, you know, we have small children, so you really can't plan anything, right? And so uh, Kenny or Abigail messed something up. And so we don't get to go on, those, on the, the dinner date. Instead, we're at home eating a cold salad and a baked potato. That's what my mother would always say when she didn't want to like, go out and she was upset about something. I'm feeling sick, sick to my stomach. I'm just going to go home and have a baked potato, you know? It's a real failure pile and a sadness bowl right there. Um, so it's, you know, it's just upsetting, you know, and it's interesting that, you know, we, we get pretty bummed even over the small things that don't work out. You know, you get really fixed on a schedule and it doesn't work out like, oh my gosh, what just happened? Your smallest, the smallest changes can bum us out. It's so interesting. And what we want to look at today is, uh, is, is that how it is with God? Not about the Mexican food stuff, but you know, is that how it is with God about plans? You know, sm you know, God has plans. He has to change them. Do things catch God by surprise? And then he's like, oh wow, that was, that was bad. Let's try to change this up a little bit. Let's, let's try to like throw a curveball here and see if we can fix what happened uh, right now. And you know, it's kind of hard for God to change his plans because if he is going to change his plans, he knows in advance, because God knows the future, he knows in advance that he's going to change his plans. And so because God knows the future, he always accounts for when things go in different directions. So it's, it's kind of hard for God to change his plans since he knows if he were going to change them, he would know what was going to happen. And so, yeah, God accounts for sins, for our mess ups and his plans, your sins and your failures. They didn't like surprise God. They didn't like catch him off guard like, wow, you know, I had no idea, you know, that 
that, uh, that you were so messed up. I, you just shocked me there. I didn't know you were that bad. No, God knows you better than yourself. You didn't catch God on surprise, off surprise there. Um, so that means as hard as it is to believe that our sins, our failures, our mess ups are not, uh, are, are not just like we have just messed up God's plan overall for us. That's not the case. For those who personally know Jesus, who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, your mess-ups are a part of God's plan, and He uses it for a greater good, for your good, for His glory. And so we're going to look at this comforting reality. I'm not saying, by the way, just be clear, like, uh, that, you know, when we, when we sin, we are breaking God's law, His design for us. We're going outside of His design. But He accounts for that with His healing and His grace, for sure. So looking at Romans 3, 1, going through the text as it are custom, verse by verse, then what advantage has the Jew? Paul has gone into this whole thing about how it doesn't matter if you're circumcised externally, you have to be born again, circumcised of the heart. You have to have a transformation that takes place. That's what matters here the most. And, you know, it doesn't matter what ethnicity, what your background is, who you knew. It doesn't matter. Is it, do you know Christ? Has there been a change in your life? Has the Holy Spirit worked on your heart? That's the most important thing. And so the obvious objection is, they're going to say, well, then why be Jewish? What's the advantage? Or what is the value of circumcision? That was the sign that they would, in, they would have to enter the covenant community to be a part of the church. The value of circumcision. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he's saying, hey, you know, uh, yeah, it's true that to be saved, that you need to put your faith in Jesus. There needs to be, you need to be born again. Um, but he is dealing with this common objection from the, from the Jewish people at the time when he was writing this is, hey, what you're saying here, Paul, is being a Jew is not special. They, we don't have any advantage then if what you're saying is true. And Paul's, Paul says, like, hold up. Wait a minute. Something's not right. That's not true. No, no. There is a lot of advantages to being a Jewish. This was the only nation that got the word of God. This is the nation where God spoke to them, communicated to them. Let me ask you a question. If you have two sons, one is communicating with their father and the other is not, who do you think has a better shot at having a good relationship with their father? The one who is communicating. And so, uh, in this case, the Jews had this distinct advantage in this way, that they were the chosen people of God, and God gave them a promises and plans for the future, and God communicated that to them by His Word and through special revelation, through God talking to them through prophets. But, um, as Paul is just about to comment, just because you have an advantage doesn't mean you're going to necessarily use that advantage. Anybody else who watches, you know, sports, football, basketball, whatever you watch, you know that just because, you know, the home team has an advantage doesn't mean they always win. It doesn't mean they take hold of that advantage. Players, um, as much as we hate to admit it, even the best ones, they have bad days. And so not everybody takes advantage of it, of, of those advantages. Not everybody takes grab of those advantages. And so those who were raised in Israel during the Old Testament time had this advantage. They, and by the way, that applies to us today because people in the church who are raised growing up, hearing the word of God at church, hearing the word of God in their family, praying over meals, you know, listening to worship songs, they have the advantages here. And what is so amazing is that God has set up advantages through the Christian family as a regular and most beneficial way for a child to know Jesus Christ. 
those who are uh, raised in Christian um, homes usually mostly have this advantage. Now, again, that does not mean every single you know, child who's raised in a Christian home comes to faith. But it certainly means they have an advantage. They have a higher chance of, of knowing Jesus than if they had they been said raised in a non-Christian home. So there is a clear advantage to having the Word of God, and the Jews had this advantage. And I, I want to say this because I know typically in churches, and I, I've done this myself especially, we love to talk about people who, you know, they were not raised Christian, they've had like a really rough past, and they've done all sorts of rebellious activity, and, you know, finally they come to Christ. And, yeah, that, don't get me wrong, that is a beautiful, amazing, wondrous thing, like the prodigal son. It's a beautiful celebration. I don't want to be misunderstood here. But I think what's often missed is that Christians sometimes downplay the blessing of being born in a Christian home, having children raised to know and love Jesus, saying, a child saying there was never a day where they didn't know Jesus. That is a blessing, and we should never underestimate that beautiful thing. And so we should praise God for children who are blessed to know Jesus as far back as they can remember. Um, and just as much as we should say praise God for the drug addict who uh, comes to faith in Christ later on in life. That, those, are, those are equally beautiful realities. And so what Paul addresses here is uh, the issue um, in these verses about the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people and how that relates to the plan and promises of God. So Romans 11, 3 through, through 4. What if some were unfaithful, the Jewish people? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul makes it clear. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So he's dealing with objection. Okay, but it's just at the time. The first century, let's be honest, most people did not believe, who were Jewish, most Jewish people did not believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They just did not. And so the, the Jewish mind at the time that Paul would encounter is, okay, so most Jewish people are not accepting Christ as their Messiah. So have as the promises to Israel, have it, has it been like wiped out? Have those promises been annulled or changed? What's going on here, Paul? And so that's the objection that he's kind of dealing with here. And just to kind of understand, well, you're like, well, okay, Nate, what are these plans and promises? I have no idea what you're talking about up here. Well, I want to read just two Old Testament verses to kind of get us into the mood of thinking about what the Jewish expectation was by reading these verses and how they thought about it, um, or just what the text says here. We want to look at the text to be more direct. What the text promises the Jewish people. Let's look at Genesis 12, um, one following. The promise to Abraham, that's where it all starts. Or at the time he's called Abram, and it's changed to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And to you all the families of the earth, not like some of the families, it's a, a, you know, a big term here, not for a few people, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Very, that's, that's a big promise right there, huh? 
Genesis 22, 17 through 18, to get another view of this promise, I just want to you know, familiar, make ourselves familiar with what God has said in the Old Testament and how the New and the Old Testament relate. It's important to think about. I will surely bless you, talking to Abraham, and I will multiply your offspring. And by the way, I'm in Genesis 22, 17 through 18. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Wow, that sounds pretty, you know, who's going to win, Satan or God? It sounds like, gosh, that's a pretty big, you're going to, the gate is what would be the defensive thing that would hold, you know, hold back uh, an army attacking, but that we're going to possess the, the gates. Israel, it says here, is going to possess the gates of his enemies. Um, sounds like Jesus' comment in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Similar language. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed. Oh, I got to read that again differently. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Not some, it's talking about a large amount. All is used that way throughout Scripture. All the nations of the earth would be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So, okay, the Jewish Christian or Jewish person is thinking, okay, what about these promises, Paul? They're in the Old Testament. How are you going to deal with them? And Paul, most of the Jewish people at this time have not accepted Jesus. They've not trusted in Christ as their Messiah. So, you know, they're asking themselves, is God's plan going to change here? Is it going to be derailed? Because the Jewish people, they have rejected Christ at this point. Now, there were some that did um, accept Christ, but the majority had rejected. And so Paul's answer here is like, no way, Jose, it's not going to happen. No. One of the ways we see this is, in fact, the seed of Abraham, which is uh, which Paul clarifies in the book of Galatians, he calls a seed Jesus Christ. Jesus is Jewish. Um, and so he's saying through Jesus, the Gentile nations are going to be blessed. Jesus is that seed that's promised um, there. And then when you think about the Jewish people as a whole, what, who started Christianity? Was it a bunch of Gentiles? Every apostle down to the man was Jewish and they spread Christianity to where now Christianity is the largest world religion. Uh, it's it, it actually, it's very clear. It, it's, it still continues to grow. It's an indisputable fact. You can look this up on any stat uh, site on um, Lifeway or anything like that, that Christianity is still growing faster as the largest world religion, faster than the human population. So um, this is, you can see like how this small Jewish community basically changed the world, impacted the world. So in that regard, Paul is right. The plan and promises of God haven't been thwarted. They haven't been changed. We are on track for world evangelization and to baptize and disciple all nations. As the Great Commission, Matthew 28 promises that we're going to baptize and disciple all nations. I don't think the church is going to fail that Great Commission. But what uh, the Jewish person would be worried about, and you can understand this if you're thinking from a first century Jewish standpoint, is what about the promises coming to the Jewish people, ethnic Israel? Because the point still remains, yeah, okay, we got Jesus, who's a seed that blesses the nations by his death, burial and resurrection and everything. That's great. But what about the direct blessings on the Jewish people itself? Um, and it's cool because Paul doesn't actually go into it here, how that happens, but he does later on in Romans 11, 25 through 27. Um, 
And so I, I, this kind of shows how his promises are fulfilled. God's promises are not thwarted. This is how it is brought about in Romans 11, 25 through 27, how these promises happen. He says to the Gentiles, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. He goes on to say it's to make them, when they see the, the massive conversion of the Gentiles, makes them jealous and they convert to following Christ. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness, Greek word fullness there suggests a massive abundance, a lot of Gentiles have come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. As it is written, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish all ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. They have salvation. They have the forgiveness, taking away their sins. So all Israel being saved, by the way, is just you know, a side note in the Greek and according to top scholars is the majority of ethnic Israel, the people of Israel, not every single Jewish person on the planet because uh, the Greek word for all suggests a massive abundance, majority, that kind of thing. Um, and we get this amazing truth through this text is that even though they have unbelief, Faithful, faithlessness, sin, and failure, all those things, God still uses them to accomplish their pro his, his promises and plans to the whole world and for the people of Israel. Now, um, I understand how that's difficult when you read Scripture, like you can think of all of the unfaithfulness and wickedness around us. We focus, as Christians, I think, too often on the corruption of our culture and how certain Christians have been persecuted, certain rights have been stripped away from Christians. And so, you know, a lot of people will look around and they'll conclude that because of these hardships, because of these difficulties, these promises and plans in the Bible, we got to maybe interpret them differently or they're not going to happen. And uh, I want to give you actually an example of this type of thinking. This is a literal quote. I'm not making this up. This is a real quote from a, a very popular pastor. This pastor is so popular and influential in the culture, he gets about 100,000 views per sermon. So, as Ron Burgundy would say, he's kind of a big deal, right? You know? Um, so he has a pretty big influence here. And so this is how he talks about the expansion of the kingdom of God. And this is a literal quote. I'm not making this up. Guess what? We don't win down here. We lose. That's a failure pile and a sadness bull right there. You ready for that? We lose here. Get it. They killed Jesus. They killed the apostles. So... When you're reading a Paul confirming God's plans and promises for the kingdom of God to the Jewish people and the blessings of the nations, when you read those promises, it doesn't sound like we lose very bad. I mean, God's promises will not fail, um, and they'll have a massive abundance of Gentiles, and then the vast majority of, of, of the people of Israel will be saved. That's a pretty cool promise. That doesn't sound like losing to me. But of course, I want to qualify this so not to be misunderstood. Uh, this preacher has a point. There is going to be unbelief, persecution, rejection, hardship, suffering, and sin, and all types of difficulties and troubles that we face going through the world as Christians. It says in um, the pastoral epistles, anybody who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. That's in the Bible. Now, I want to tell you something. I'm sure you guys probably have guessed this. Uh, I've, I think I've used Rocky quotes in the past, but the Rocky series is just amazing. This is going somewhere. Don't worry. I know it sounds like I'm just talking about movies up here. It's going somewhere. 
Um, I love the Rocky series, probably than any other series out there. I mean, just really, it speaks to my soul. Um, now, let me ask you a question. In the Rocky series, is Rocky a loser or a winner? Comes winner though, right? If you if you're to like look at Rocky's life and say, yeah, that guy's a loser, you'd be, be wrong. All right, he's not, Rocky is is very much a winner overall. Okay, he didn't win every match. We people know if you watch the movie, you know he doesn't he doesn't he has losses on his records, but he's a winner overall. Now, also, no one gets beat up worse than Rocky. <laughs> That is for sure. No, I mean, Ivan Drago, they, that guy's taking roids. I must break you. You know, he's huge, you know. I mean, guy's going to, I mean, one hit from him. I mean, he killed Apollo Creed, you know. And, uh, you know, and Rocky just takes a full-on beating from that guy, but he ends up winning. Sorry if I spoiled that for you. Um, it's been like, what, 38 years? I mean, that bastard just ruined the end of Rocky Four for me. So, you know, you see him work through the difficult problems in life and, and, and he, he, you know, surpasses them all and wins and it makes it more beautiful and it becomes one of the most encouraging, wonderful movies ever. But he deals with so much suffering. And I love this quote from Rocky. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows, right? That's true. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life, but it ain't about how hard you get or how hard you hit, but about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep more moving forward. That is how winning is done. See, Rocky says it. That's kind of like how the church is. You know, we're going to get hit and beat and we're going to be persecuted at times. I mean, America is a pretty good, pretty good deal. But, you know, you go to other places like Afghanistan. It's pretty rough. Right. Um, but through our suffering, through persecution, even through our rights being stripped, we will succeed. We will win. God will win. And, you know, there's a very interesting expression from the church fathers. Um, and it was a phenomenon in the early church. The expression goes something like this. The blood of the martyrs are seed. Meaning that in the, in, the, in the first two to three hundred years of a church, when you killed a martyr, they would think, okay, we're stamping out Christianity. When they killed one, people were inspired by that martyrdom and Christianity spread more rapidly than ever before. So they said the blood of the martyrs are seed of the church, meaning that's how Christianity expanded so rapidly. Not through killing people or through conquest, but by the blood of Christians being spilled as Jesus, their, their Savior, first did for them and for all their sins. So this means that, yeah, that we do win down here. Um, and, you know, uh, it may not be in the worldly way of winning, right, that we would expect, you know, like, you know, Mercedes Benz and, you know, $5 billion. I would no house is $5 billion. Really, we know that. Five, I went to say $5 million, right? So we don't, we may not win in that worldly way, but... God's promises, they come true. May God be true everyone's a liar. They happen. They, they, they are accomplished. God wins through, through suffering, through loss, through failure, similar to Rocky. God always wins. But there will be loss. There will be failure. There will be pains as a part of his plan. And he uses that for the greater good. For your greater good. The, the pains that you're encountering right now. The suffering you're enduring right now. God uses that in your life for his glory and for a greater good. This is what uh, Romans 8.28 says. We all know this verse. It's good to remind ourselves of this verse when we're going through difficult times. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
All things. Difficulty. Pain, sadness, hurt, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God has a plan. That means God uses your sins, your failures, your greatest mess ups for your ultimate good and for his glory. It is the God of the Bible who brings beauty out of ashes. That's the kind of God he is, the type of God that he is bringing beauty from ashes. I love the way how it's captured this beauty from ashes motif so beautifully in Romans 11 32 and 36. And Paul goes on to wax eloquent about the, the mystery and beauty of God, how he brings beauty from ashes. For God has consigned all disobedience. It is a part of his plan. Consigned all disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. We would never expect things to go this way because God is infinite. And so amazing how he brings beauty from ashes. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So you can see clearly from this text, mess ups, human disobedience are used as a part of his plan for the purpose of him having mercy and all. Now, that can be misunderstood to think that every single person in the world is going to be saved. Um, and of course, the Bible does teach that those who reject Christ, there will be um, everlasting judgment. It does teach that in, in Matthew 25 in the book of Revelation. I'm not denying that. Um, it, it, this is talking about a massive abundance of, of salvation and grace coming to people. It certainly doesn't mean a few frozen chosen people who are going to be saved. You know, just, you know, me and my family no more, us four no more. It doesn't mean that. It means a massive abundance. As the book of Revelation would say, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so when we take in account uh, our disobedience and failures, it says right here in Romans 11, hey, you know, God's going to make something of the messes in your life, of the sins in your life. God's going to do something from that. And so if you think that somehow, if you believe this, I know people that struggle with this, you believe that your sin um, and your failure and your, your, your greatest um, transgressions in life, whatever it is, if you think that has messed up somehow God's plan for your life, praise God, you're not that powerful. And so as we keep on reading this, we see how uh, Paul kind of deals with kind of tough philosophical questions from this Jewish, Jewish opponents, Jewish Christians that would be struggling with this. So Paul answers objections uh, with people that are struggling. He goes through them as following the model of 1 Peter 3.15, giving a reason uh, for the hope that's within us. So Romans 3.5, he says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So this is, you might be like, what's going on here? Like, I don't know what this person's saying, you know, from this text. And it, what it's been kind of agreed upon, and when you look at it, and you can put together what the Jewish mind was thinking at that time, it's likely the Jewish objector is saying, okay, if sin and failure show God's faithfulness to his plan, and our failures serve to magnify his righteousness and glory, then why is it fair that he judges us? Like how, what gives him the right? 
You know, if it's a part of God's plan and God knows it's going to happen, you know, how is it right for God to punish anybody? When you think about it, these are common objections that people have to Christianity. And um, what Paul says here, okay, because a Jewish person at the time believed that God was going to be judge of the world. Only, we always, we always say, only God can judge. And that's how the, the first century uh, Jewish mind thought. And so he's saying, like, if you were right about this line of reasoning, then God couldn't be the judge. But we all know that God's the judge. So you're, you're, there's something wrong with your reasoning here because that doesn't make any sense because you agree he's the judge. I agree he's the judge. So there's something wrong with how you're thinking about this. Um, he puts it here in Romans 3, 6 through 8. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? You agree he, he's, he's going to be the judge. I agree he's going to be the judge. So you're, you've made a mistake in your reasoning here somehow, is Paul's point. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. So through my sin, God uses my sin for a greater good for, a glory, for his glory. Then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Saying, hey, you know, why am I still being punished? This is not fair here. And why not do evil that good may come? course we all have moral responsibility whether or not god has a you know god has a plan for us he does have a plan and he we, we still choose to sin um you know we're not puppets or something like this but he says yeah why uh, not do evil that good may come um as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just so it's saying because God does have a plan and his plan includes our screw-ups, then I might as well mess up all the time. Because if I mess up, it's okay. God's just going to use it for a greater good. So that means I can just send it up all I want and just mess around and do whatever I feel like. Because you know what? God's going to use that for a greater good. So I don't have to worry about, you know, trying to follow Christ or living the Christian life. I can just do whatever I want. And so... Paul is Paul kind of, you know, lays on the hammer on this kind of thinking and saying, look, you know, that's that's like something, you know, this is something from his non-Christian, uh, uh, you know, objectors. He's like, you're under God's judgment for blaspheming God and misrepresenting what the Bible is teaching. And, you know, one of the things I find so interesting is if you read through the New Testament, the New Testament authors have no problem with God having a will and plan for our lives. And yet in the same breath telling us, hey, by the way. Don't sin, right? Um, which is, is interesting to me because the New Testament authors, I think on some level, you know, they, they teach this, that sin is harmful to you, right? So, it, you know, you wouldn't want to harm yourself just because God's going to heal you or eventually you're going to heal up. It's like you take out a sledgehammer, you start bashing your hand. You're like, oh, God's going to use it for good. No one does that, right? Because sin is harmful. When people say like, well, I can send it up all I want, you're assuming that sin is like, you know, like not dysfunctional and horrible for you. But it is. Just like taking a sledgehammer and slap, smashing your hand or putting probably a more wholesome image of putting it on a stove, don't you think? Should have gone with that one, yeah. Sorry, it wasn't in my notes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, don't hurt yourself. Stop hitting yourself, right? Don't do that. You know, just because God has a plan doesn't mean we can just, you know, be abusive to ourselves. No one thinks that way. Um, and that's how the authors of the New Testament thought about it. But I love how they just live in this world where, yeah, God has a plan. And that doesn't mean we can sin. James, the brother of Jesus, in James 4, 13 through 7, he puts it like this. Come now. You say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spread, uh, spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's how 
weak we are in the eyes of the infinite God, how quick our existence, or not our, 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 our life down here, not our existence, but our life down here in comparison to the infinite foundation of God himself. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's God's will that we will live and do this or that. That's what we should be banking on. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And look, he's, he acknowledges God's plan, but he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So he's still saying, don't sin, but God has a plan. There's no tension here in James, the brother of Jesus' mind. And so uh, Paul actually deals with this accusation that, oh, well, we can just sin all we want. You know, because if I sin more, God's going to show me more grace and God's going to be glorified more. He deals with this uh, accusation, not just in Romans 3, but in Romans 5. This is a common theme in his ministry that he deals with. Romans 5, 20 through 21, this is where people would misunderstand Paul's teaching here and they misrepresent it because it's so amazing and beautiful, the grace that God has for us. Now, the law came in to increase trespass. That's sinning. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. More sin? Oh, God's like, I got more grace for you. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So people think, oh, well, if more sin means more grace, then I can just sin all I want. And so Paul deals with this in Romans 6. He says, yeah, no, don't think that way. That's, that's bad. Stop it. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Just keep on sinning so we can get more grace? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's been a transformation here. How can this be happening? You can't, you can't, if you die to sin, you can't live in it. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Were you, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there is a, there's a transformation here done to the heart. When someone trusts in Jesus, they're not the same person. Because they realize what Jesus has done for them, their lives are changed. They, they love Jesus for, for sacrificing everything for them. Sacrificing more than any other person for them ever. Even more than their own mother. Jesus sacrificed more for you. So there becomes a gratitude and a thankfulness and a transformation that occurs when one trusts in Christ when one's born again. And so, you know, it's not like you're going to want to be immoral or anything like that. Um, or it's, it's not going to make you want to sin more when you hear that you have an unlimited supply of grace, an unlimited supply of forgiveness, and that God um, is going to, to help and bless you even through your struggling with sin. That doesn't make you want to sin more. That makes you, as we'll see, makes you want to sin less. Um, so I want to kind of do the opposite here to kind of prove my point. Let's assume that you had a limited supply of grace, a limited supply of forgiveness, and if you messed up really bad, God's going to kind of chuck you off the side. You're like, you know, you're in the doghouse. Let's assume that view, that legalistic view is correct. Now, what happens when you mess up really bad? How does, how does this process go? Well, when you mess up, You've really messed up with God, right? So you got to make it up. You got to do enough good things to make it up. And you got to clean up your life before you can come to God again. That's the idea. Assuming, if you're hyper legalistic, assuming God will allow that because some, 
you know, religious worldview say if you commit adultery or if you murder somebody or you know, if you hurt someone who's elderly or whatever it is, some, some really horrible sin that you're actually, oh, you ran out of grace, you're done forever, you know, kind of thing. Those, those assuming God actually allows it to happen. So, you know, if you hold that view that God's mad at you or God's angry at you and you're under God's wrath, you're going to want to go to church on Sunday? He wants to be around a dad who's mad at them, you know. You're going to be reading your Bible? cultivating a relationship with God? No, you're going to be trying to like, you're going to be in despair and then say, okay, I got to, you know, you kind of procrastinate. I'm going to try to get back into God's good favor and graces here. And so, but when we slip into this kind of thinking, we don't run towards God. We run away from God. That's why I've talked to probably every Christian I've ever met, like in my life, I mean, have had this issue. You know, Nate, when I really do something evil or terrible, I, I just can't pray or read my Bible because we all operate in this way that, okay, you know, if I do bad things, God's going to, you know, come after me and I'm in big trouble. And so the last thing you want to do is read your Bible and cultivate a relationship with God and trying to be more like God. And so we get more disconnected from God and that hurts us spiritually. And so, yeah, this legalistic view does not create obedience. It creates despair, depression, hopelessness. It doesn't produce growth and change in trying to be like God. But you see, when you get the gospel and how much Jesus loves you and how he has died for all of your sins in your life, and you know that he even died for those sinful choices you made, then God knew every single time you would sin. He knows the future exhaustively. He knows every sin that you're ever going to commit. And he took all of those sins and he put that on his son 2,000 years ago. And so the, you can never be punished for those sins because Jesus was punished in your place. And so, yeah, they're all paid for and advanced. So that you don't have to, when you sin or mess up, you don't have to lose that connection with God and, and be dis, feel disconnected because that's already been paid for. Any sin you've committed today, already been paid for. You didn't catch God by surprise. He saw that you were in a sin, accounted for it in his plan, put it on his son, so you don't have to you know, worry about God you know, hating you because you've messed up. And so when you get the gospel, you realize, oh, okay, well, I just sinned. I'm, I'm going to go pray. Uh, first thing you want to do is read your Bible, listen to worship music. You see, so when we think the opposite view, though, we lead to despair, hopelessness, especially if you really mess up and you really feel horrible, you're going to feel more distant and depressed from God than ever before. You're going to feel like, oh, God can never help me or heal me. I'm lost forever. I'm done. You know, this kind of permanent kind of thinking that, oh, God can never fix anything. It's all messed up forever. You know, kind of just permanent despair thinking. And the gospel destroys that. Say, no. Jesus took your permanent problems on the cross, the suffering of the wrath of God in your place. I love this thing I've seen on the internet. It's a little cheesy, but it really captures the point well. Um, Man-made religion says, I messed up. My father's going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. Because you know what? You and I, we sin every day. And you see, when you hold to a legalistic view, you're just going to be living in constant shame, constant despair, because you always think you permanently screwed up something. You're always going to be running from God. He's just going to punish me. He's scary. I'm afraid of him. And you see, there's no hope in that view. There's no healing in that view. It's just a failure pile in a sadness bowl. 
But you see, the grace of the gospel is, says that, yeah, we have sinned, but God loves me. And in fact, he loves me so much that, that even though I sin, I, he loves me more. And, and that doesn't make me love him less. That makes me love him more. That makes me want to be like Jesus more. That makes me want to serve God more faithfully. Even though I am faithless, he is still faithful. That makes me want to be like God in Christ. That makes me want to show grace and love and mercy to my neighbors when they mess up. That makes me want to show love and grace and mercy to my spouse when they mess up. To my children when they mess up. It's a transforming truth the gospel is. I love the way that Paul puts it so poignantly. It really stings the nostrils how clear he puts it here in 2 Timothy uh, 2, 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And you know, this last part you're expecting, okay, if I'm good, then God's going to be good to me. That's, what we, that's how we think. That's why we don't read our Bibles when we mess up. That's why we feel like we need to run from God, just like Adam did in the garden. It says, if we are faithless, not, you know, oh, you're faithless, you're going to hell. You're in big, big trouble. No, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny you into heaven any more than he can deny his son, Jesus Christ. That's how sure the gospel is. God is not going to stop loving you. That is the greatest lie of Satan that God no longer loves you. He loves you so much. He planned for all of your sins and put them on his son. God has taken that account of all your mess ups in his plan so he can bless you eternally in Christ, knowing him. And so we live in legalism, we live in the dark. But when you come to trust in Christ, you finally have hope, comfort, and healing. So if you are living in the dark and you are struggling with your sins and feeling in shame and trapped, know that there's hope in Jesus and trusting in him and all those shames, all of that guilt we put on the cross as it was 2,000 years ago. So I pray that you guys, if you haven't, uh, if someone's here who hasn't, would receive that hope in Christ. Let us pray.